0: Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The rosters are set, and baseball's brightest stars are descending on Los Angeles for the 2022 All-Star Game. You can bet on baseball all summer long with betonline.ag, and you can get a 50% welcome bonus when you sign up with our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live, because it's a podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody. It is July 12th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening We've got a fun show coming up today. We are going to have the return of our Oral Histories segment, this time on the history of the NBA Summer League. It's going to be my way of doing intellectual analysis and storytelling on the NBA Summer League, which is glorified preseason, but we'll also do a preseason Hall of Fame for the Summer League coming up at some point here. And speaking of storytelling, also, Fall of the Spurs Dynasty, Episode 3. We're making a five-part podcast documentary series with SB Nation. It's going to be tomorrow's episode of the show. If you haven't listened to Episodes 1 and Episodes 2, go back and listen to those before tomorrow. You've already given me the download for this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed the oral history of Summer League and talking about unionization in America, but also... check out those episodes of the podcast so that you can be caught up before episode three drops tomorrow check that out it's on this feed if you go back a few days and uh if you're listening on apple podcast or spotify the link in the description to this episode has the feed for the fall of the spurs dynasty podcast okay shameless plugging out of the way let's go on with the show because this will be the last time that i speak to you directly Before said third episode drops on Wednesday. So, we begin the show today with our A block. I mentioned it a second ago unionization in America. It's a topic we've mentioned before on this show. In fact, we talked about it last week in conversation about how it's incredibly important for college athletes, especially college football and college basketball players. To get money from their membership schools as schools increase their athletic budgets. Uh, It's very important that these schools get, or that these players get a formalized union within the next five to 10 years so that as these new television contracts get negotiated, they can collect revenue from the member schools. And uh, it's very important that these players get fairly compensated because athletes are making roughly about 15 cents on the dollar, according to studies done by Drexel University in 2018. Also, 15% of workers in the United States are part of a union. Back in the 1950s, that number was around 40 to 50%. It's part of the reason that some of the things we're going to talk about on this episode are happening in the United States. Unionization, it's our topic of the day here because of a really interesting story that I saw break out on Monday that I feel deserves more adequate conversation than uh, it is getting. uh, Combined with the fact that we just generally should be having a conversation about this stuff in a grander macro sense, but there's a lot of issues going on in the world. And so sometimes unionization and workers' rights falls to the, uh, to the back burner of the conversation. And note that I am very much over the years swinging towards a pro-labor opinion on a lot of this stuff. I am now, as many of you listening are, labor. So it's important to stand up for workers' rights and labor, labor rights, especially in the United States, where part of what we'll talk about today is the fact that the wealth in America is being concentrated more and more with a few, and there's less of a middle class and uh, poverty lines remain similar to where they were in years past, and all of it is a depressingly consistent tale that has existed now for going on 50 years in America, because where a lot of this starts is around 1974. The, the minimum wage in the United States stagnated around 1974, and uh, you're going to see data in today's episode that talk about how the median wage stagnates, and as the price of everything goes up, you see uh, less and less of a middle class. But I'm jumping ahead of the story a little bit. Where this is all based out of is a story that came out on Monday, and uh, the best way to describe it would be to use the article from Bill Shakin of the Los Angeles Times. It would be the best place to uh, give the details here with so that I don't uh, mess up something here. I'd like to think of myself as a little bit of a journalist reporting objective facts. It's also good to just use the work of actual journalists getting paid actual living salaries to do objective fact reporting. So, with that, we'll turn to Bill Shakin of the Los Angeles Times to give the breakdown of why I'm interested in unionization and union workers in America. Dodgers, stadium, concession workers could go on strike in advance of next week's All-Star game, the union representing those workers said on Monday. Of the food and beverage workers at Dodger Stadium, 99% voted Sunday to authorize a strike. Unite Here spokeswoman Maria Hernandez said in a statement. The strike could begin, quote, at any time, according to the statement. The Dodger Stadium All Star festivities begin Saturday with the Futures game, followed by Home Run Derby Monday and All Star game on Tuesday. They didn't mention in there the uh, MLB draft is on Sunday. That has nothing to do with Dodger Stadium, though. The workers are employed by Chicago-based Levy Restaurants, the company responsible for concession operations at Dodger Stadium. Kevin Mimolo, the spokesman for Levy Restaurants, did not immediately return message Monday. In a statement, the union says it represents close to 1,500 food servers, bartenders, suite attendants, cooks, and dishwashers at Dodger Stadium. The workers seek, quote, a fair new union contract, the statement said. In an interview, Hernandez said she could not provide specific demands, but said the pandemic had put a stark light on the housing and healthcare disparities that workers face. Quote, they are the backbone of our tourism and sports industry, yet many struggle to stay housed and to make ends meet, says Susan Minatu, co-president of the Unite Here Local 11. Quote, they often live with economic uncertainty because the quality of jobs varies stadium to stadium. No worker should have to continue living like this. The Major League Baseball Players Association released a statement in support of the concession workers. Quote, the MLBPA stands in solidarity with the Dodger Stadium concession workers represented by Unite Here Local 11. Like thousands of ballpark workers across the country, Local 11's members are a vital yet underappreciated part of what makes our game great. They deserve to be treated fairly and will continue to have the 1,200 members of the Major League Baseball Players Association behind them. So that's the story. Dodger Stadium workers are using the upcoming Major League Baseball All Star game as leverage to potentially go on strike and uh, use that, you know, the impending influx of dozens, well, not dozens, of thousands of people into Los Angeles and into Dodger Stadium as a way to leverage negotiation for a new work con- or for a new uh, union contract. And power to the workers all the way through and through. We are pro labor on this podcast. What I wanted to talk about is just a macro level conversation around this uh, unionization part, because like we mentioned at the start, used to be about 40% of people were represented by a union. That number's down to about 15% in the United States. And since 1990, the median wage, well, really, here's the best way to start out. Between 1990 and 2015, the median household income in the United States did not change. It went through peaks, it went through valleys, but basically it was at $55,000 in 1990 was the median household income in the United States. And in 2015, that number was about $55,500. You had virtually no change in the median household income in the United States between 1990 and 2015. And around 2015, you start to see an increase in median household income from Fifty-eight thousand to sixty-three thousand dollars per year. This is as we're going. We're exiting the last residue of the Great Recession. Uh, leading into the Trump presidency, and data suggests that this was a carryover effect from the Obama presidency. Uh, There's deeper economic involvement there, but we're not going to go deep into that. This data is courtesy of the FRED uh, database. Well, I guess the FRED is based out of St. Louis, but it's uh, stlouisfed.org if you're looking for this data set. You can find it pretty much anywhere. Most of it will be the same. Some of it will change. There's also only data through 2020 So we don't know the true effects of the COVID pandemic after 20, well, at 2020, we see a dip from about 69,000 down to about 67,000 being the median household income in the United States. But ultimately, if you're going, (laughs) this is basic economic stuff, but basically if you're going 40, well, not 40 years, 1990 to 2015, if you're going 25 years without seeing any significant change in median household income, only if your inflation rate remains the same do you see a a stagnation of the quality of people's lives shall we say because that dollar that that one dollar in 1990 is not valued exactly the same as that one dollar in 2015 so if you have the same household income as you did 25 years ago those that, that dollar value is not going to be worth the same and so People are losing money as a result of that. How much money are they losing as a median household income? Well, if we assume that the inflation rate, which again, this is just basic economic stuff right now. I'm not going to go too deep into it, but assume inflation rate in 1959, which is when data first begins, say the inflation rate is 1%. In in 1990, that rate would be 4.5%. And by 2015, now we'll say 2021 because we don't have data for this year, it would be about 9%, and if you're talking about 2015, it would be like 8.6%. So you're batting between 8.5% and 9% inflation rate increase, which is just the increase in the prices of goods and services relative to what the dollar is worth. So basically... And I say basically acknowledging that I'm trained in economics and I'm trying to use as simple data as possible, but I feel like I've already talked too much about the data that to prove the point. But basically, median household income between 1990 and 2015, it stayed dead the same. So you have the same, say everyone has $100. Well, everyone is starting with the same $100 and... If you have $100 in 1959, in 1990, that $100 is worth like $95.40 and something cents. And then if you carry that $100, but you never get any more money, you still have that $100 in 2015, well, that $100 is now worth the equivalent of $91 in the you know based on what it was worth in 1959 so that hundred dollars is worth 91 dollars you've just lost nine percent of your income as a result of not increasing your wages so increase so wealth of the median person is going down in the united states wealth is being concentrated at the top it's not a new phenomenon we've known about it for 20 years so as wealth gets concentrated at the top This phenomenon you're seeing now is not just that people who are in the lowest income brackets can't afford to live in many of the major cities in the United States. Now, people in the middle class cannot afford to live in major United States cities. And this is what is important to talk about, not just with Dodger Stadium workers, who I assume they're making more than minimum wage, but aren't making enough to where they're on the highest level of income earners in the Los Angeles area. They're probably on the lower end of the economic scale in Los Angeles. Is that people working jobs that are what we deem to be low-paying service jobs or menial work, they cannot afford to live in the places that they are working anymore. And this is a case that exists in every California city. I've been back and forth between San Francisco and Sacramento and San Diego. I haven't spent as much time in Los Angeles, although Los Angeles is experiencing the same phenomenons. And everywhere you're seeing places where, uh, you know, there's a shortage of food staff workers and things of those sorts. If you can't afford to live in the places that you are working then you're not going to have enough employees to run those service jobs. And this is the problem that I'm sure Dodger Stadium workers are running into, but also staff workers in similar professions across California and across America are running into. It's just happening in California, but, you know, especially in Los Angeles because it's really bleep and expensive to live in these places. And so you're seeing minimum wage raised to $15 in California. And people hiring around $20 as like a starting salary, like working at uh, whatever you think of as a quote unquote minimum wage job, people are working those jobs starting around $20 an hour in many places because that's the only way you can afford to live in the area that you are working. And by the way, this is a good protection point is that the so- there's a solution to this. It is to increase wages. That is your solution to increase in prices and increase of costs of living, is to increase wages. The thing is, employers don't want to increase wages, and this is where it's important to have a union to collectively negotiate these things. The thing is, in America, we've torn apart unions over the last 20 years, and even for jobs that don't have union representation, unions in similar professions can be guides to help People in similar jobs figure out what they are worth in the open market so for example if you go to uh, say the Rose Bowl Stadium where there's a story I read in doing research for this where a woman talked about having to pick up shifts at the Rose Bowl Stadium because Dodger Stadium work wasn't enough to pay the bills to live in los angeles which again a lot of people are born and raised in los angeles on the lower ends of the income scale this is not like they have other options to move to or they move to los angeles intentionally these are people who have lived in los angeles For two to three generations, many of their parents and grandparents came to the United States as immigrants and lived in Los Angeles. They are being pushed out of their communities by policies in order to, quote unquote, gentrify a lot of communities. But the point still stands. You're looking at a situation where people who have lived in Los Angeles their entire lives cannot afford to live there. And so back to the point I was saying before, say you are working at the Rose Bowl Stadium in Pasadena. But you don't have a union contract. I don't know if they have a union contract or not. But even if you don't have a union contract there, you can look to what Dodger Stadium workers are getting and say, hey, that's a good guide for how much we should be making, even if we don't have union level protections. And This is a California is better about this. Other places actively work to undermine unions. I'm not saying California doesn't have employers that actively work to undermine unions. California just has more legal protections for unions than other states. And so this is a difficult thing that's happening everywhere As you hear all the time, you know, increase in gas prices In median uh, rent in the United States has gone up 18 percent. This is data according to Spectrum News 1 in New York that uh, Redfin analysis has shown that median rent from May of 2021 to May of 2022 has gone up 18% in the United States. And so as it costs more to live in the United States, you need to have equal wage increases and you're just not seeing that. And that's why you hear conversations about Uh, They're not being enough work in, you know, low-paying service jobs, whatever you imagine low-paying service jobs to be. I'm purposely not throwing out examples because I don't want to demean specific lines of work. Low-paying service jobs are not getting enough work, and it's not because people are getting unemployment benefits, which was a big point of contention back in 2020 when stimulus reliefs were going on. It's that people can't work at those wages and still live in the communities that they are working in and this is what's happening in los angeles and miami and austin texas and in san francisco and sacramento and most major cities in america are experiencing some version of this phenomenon where the people on the lowest ends of the earning spectrum are being pushed out of the cities that they are living in And the solution is so simple, you just increase wages. And the easiest way to have that level of protection, because employers are not going to give it up voluntarily, is to have union protections. So if it's a greater point that these union workers strike in advance of the Dodger Stadium All-Star game, power to them. It's something that at least they're part of the 15% of workers that do have union protections in the United States because most working positions like this aren't afforded that type of benefit because there's just not not enough union representation in America. We've gutted union representation, we've stagnated the minimum wage, and as a result of this, you're seeing people suffer on the lowest ends of the economic spectrum and also people who are median income by these standards because... Yeah, $60,000 a year of median income might be the national median income. It sure as hell ain't the median income in Los Angeles. Or it ain't the median income where I live in Sacramento. Even though Sacramento's like one of the cheapest large cities to live in in California, definitely ain't the median income in Sacramento. Definitely ain't the median income in Miami or Austin, Texas, or New York City, or even, like, you could go to Cincinnati, Ohio, where our friend Blake Jude lives. Every city is experiencing some version of this phenomenon. The Dodger Stadium one just gives us a point to talk about as we, we do boring economic analysis of inflation and median income prices. It's not a new phenomenon. It's just something that we are now exacerbated by the pandemic as the pandemic sped up a lot of stuff. I joke that we aged, uh, or we evolved 10 years in 10 weeks because a lot of necessities kind of sped things up in the pandemic and i've I've gone back on that a little bit because you can't evolve 10 years in 10 weeks it just forces people to come up with new ideas and as we're learning you can always work backwards again and what we're doing now is going back to our old ways which is it's more expensive to live in certain places inflation goes up which by the way inflation good thing it's not always bad thing inflation can be good thing it's just, it's not complemented with an increase in wages nationally and in these cities. So, power to the Dodger Stadium workers because unionization is one of the best ways to actually force people to increase those wages, so that we don't concentrate wealth with people at the top and that poor people and middle class people can actually get some form of income. Like it's, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's simple, but it's not simple because of the, the the unique mindset to the United States. I mean, other places have it, but just this unique mindset to the United States that we'll be fine, we'll just wing it and everything will be fine, and it's not exactly the case. And as it relates to baseball, I hope this dominates the Major League Baseball All-Star game storyline. I know it's not going to, on a national level, I hope this is a conversation that gets brought up as a result of this all-star game more than just on this little rinky dink podcast where we care about training and economics and median wages and all this stuff. I I hope that this becomes a story that is similar to like the, the radio row week in the super bowl where like Brian Flores and Kyler Murray can like try and hijack the week's media coverage. I hope this is something that gets appropriate media coverage because it will do more good for the, for the United States and will do more good for those workers. If they get the protections of uh, just national conversation and maybe it will lead to other people in other industries pushing to unionize and ultimately that will be a greater victory out of this event than anything Major League Baseball could put on with Pete Alonso and Ronald Acuna Jr. in the home run derby. Using the all star game as a vehicle for unionization efforts and an effort for labor to make gains against the system in the United States. It's not where I thought this all star week would go, but hopefully it ends up doing something good for those Dodger Stadium workers and possibly workers in other fields and other industries in the United States inspired to unionize. If you're listening right now, start taking if you're listening and you uh, work in in an office space right now take the steps towards unionization it's legal in every uh, city of the united states every office space has the right to unionization see if unionization is right for you google it see what it will take in order to unionize take the first steps in order to move towards unionization in whatever field you might be in Alright, transitioning from union workers and the state of economics in the United States, let's talk about NBA Summer League. I don't want to talk about NBA Summer League, I just want to talk about the fun story around the history of Summer League, which will be brought to you in this Oral Histories of Sports podcast that we do every now and then here if you want to listen to the full database of oral histories of sports uh i made a separate podcast feed a little while back i don't really feel like the urge to promote it because it's just something that we kind of do for fun every now and then when we need content did a florida state one a detroit lions when the buffalo bills stadium came out i did oral histories about that did one on the chargers did one on the rams That was actually like, took three hours to write the piece and was 30 or 40 minutes long. So check that out as well. There's all kinds of good oral histories there. But today's oral histories will revolve around the NBA Summer League. Because there's a really interesting story about how the NBA Summer League became what is now a profitable endeavor for the NBA. And as soon as the NBA gets a profitable endeavor, it starts to lose its charm a little bit. But the NBA Summer League, when I was a child and many years before, just had this nice little charm to it. So back in 2002, the first NBA Summer League began in Orlando, Florida. Only on television could you watch these games. They were held in empty gyms. And the Orlando Magic played in a four team tournament with the Dallas Mavericks and the then Oklahoma City Thunder and the Houston Rockets in a summer league tournament. The Memphis Grizzlies were in it for a while, and the 76ers played in it. And they were just exhibition games with rookies and what was at the time G League players that existed only on local television broadcasts. And as the years went on, the Orlando Summer League was uh, a precursor to what would become the larger Summer League because the Orlando Summer League decided that they were going to have only four or five teams participate in the Orlando Summer League. So what emerged in 2004, two years later, was what we now know to be the Las Vegas Summer League, which in 2007 was renamed the NBA Summer League or the NBA Las Vegas Summer League. But for three years, it was an unofficial tournament in the Las Vegas area. And also, Las Vegas is just more fun than playing in, say, Orlando or Salt Lake City, where many of the other NBA Summer Leagues have existed. So the very first NBA Las Vegas Summer League in 2004, well, all of them have been played at the Thomas and Mack Center, which is where the UNLV Runnin' Rebels play, and it is a unique setting in that it's the, lar- at the time, the largest sports stadium venue in the Los Angeles or in the Las Vegas area now Las Vegas now has a hockey slash boxing slash UFC arena the T-Mobile arena that fits roughly about the same people but what's the in- same amount of people but what's interesting about the Thomas and Mack Center is that the Thomas and Mack Center is roughly the size of a large NBA arena now why is that the case well because Las Vegas can host conference tournaments and major basketball stuff, but they don't have a professional basketball team. So the closest thing to that is the Thomas and Max Center, where you can host events like the Las Vegas Summer League. Or three years later, once the NBA started lending their name to... The Las Vegas Summer League and acknowledged the Las Vegas, uh, the, well, really the existence of Las Vegas because of all the, the ties to gambling in the past. In 2007, Las Vegas and the Thomas and Mack Center hosted the NBA All Star Game. Weird enough, the NBA All Star Game was held on UNLV's campus. Strange. So, anyways, back to 2004, the first Summer League had just six teams. And they didn't do anything other than just play scrimmage games for the most part. There's a lot of G League players, undrafted rookies, maybe a second round pick. But there were only six teams in the Las Vegas Summer League, including Orlando, by the way, who hosted their own Summer League, but decided their competitive advantage was going to be to play lots of different Summer Leagues and try out lots of different players. In 2007, we mentioned before, it officially became part of the NBA's cycle of events. But attendance was only around like 3,000 to 4,000 people. Most of them scouts, but some people would be fans. Some in the local area, some people who are like crazy fans of these teams would go to Las Vegas. And so what emerged from this was this idea of quote-unquote unprecedented access which by the way is what the NBA would begin to sell once they got into the 2010s. This idea of you can get unprecedented access to players and fan or players and general managers and coaches. Why? Cuz there's, you know, no real tickets being sold for the event. It was pretty much just anyone who wanted to come could come to these things and you'd be hanging out with scouts and maybe some players on some of the teams kind of just hanging out in Las Vegas, and maybe a star player would show up every now and then. But around 2006, they started broadcasting them on NBA TV, because the NBA needed some programming during this time, and they didn't crown a champion, but they did start giving out Summer League MVP trophies. What a fun little phenomenon. And... In 2006, they gave it to Randy Foy, who would play, I think he was a top pick in the 2006 draft, but was one of the rare top first round picks, top 10 picks, who actually played in the Summer League. He was drafted by Minnesota, who started going to the Summer League, and this point there were around like 10 teams at this point playing in the Summer League, like 10 to 12. And then the next year, Nate Robinson, who would go on to win a bunch of dunk contests, won the Summer League MVP. The year after that, it was Gerard Bayless, who was a top, I think, like 14 pick in the 2008 draft. But they started naming MVPs of the games, but they didn't crown a champion. But it was a fun little event. They had one in Orlando. They had a like, two-day one in Utah. They had the Las Vegas Summer League, which was now growing to uh, 12 teams. And then in 2008, after they named it three times and then started negotiating television contracts, not just with uh, not just with NBA TV but also with ESPN, in 2008 it went from 12 NBA teams to 22 NBA teams joining the Las Vegas Summer League, and you still had the one in Orlando, you still had one in Utah, but the big one was taking place in the Las Vegas area. And what happened with 22 teams is that more teams with more stars got to have summer leagues. But at this point they hadn't realized that summer leagues not that important for your number 1 pick in the draft. It's not important for your number 2 pick in the draft. Everyone was just excited to now have a summer league team. And so in 2009, this is when the summer league first began to explode because who played in 2009 at the Summer League? Blake Griffin, the number one pick in the 2009 NBA Draft. By the way, he ended up not playing during that first year. He he didn't play at all <laughs> during the season um, because he got a stress fracture like right before the season began. But he ended up missing the whole first season but played in Summer League. So for about two years... This player who was drafted ahead of James Harden and Steph Curry and DeMar DeRozan was universally regarded as like the next great thing in the NBA. Zion Williamson before Zion Williamson or whatever you want to call it. For a year and a half, the only tape of Blake Griffin was during the NBA Summer League. And that normalized the NBA Summer League just a little bit more. The next year, John Wall, who was the number one pick in the 2010 draft, he won Summer League MVP when when the Wizards finally made their trek over to the uh, the Las Vegas Summer League. Actually, Vegas, sorry, the Wizards were one of the original teams in the Summer League, but they played John Wall in the Las Vegas Summer League, and John Wall won MVP, and again, if you wanted to see John Wall play before playing for the Wizards, glorified preseason, it sells. And then they didn't hold the tournament in 2011. I don't know why that was the case. Oh, I also forgot to mention in 2010, that was the first time you saw Summer League being played in NBA 2K. In the My Player mode of NBA 2K, you got to go play in three Summer League games before you went to the NBA. Because again, the NBA licensed with the Summer League so that it could be added to NBA 2K just a year or two after they started licensing it. So Summer League, again, you still only have like 4,000, 5,000 people showing up to the event. But then you had... Oh, I remember why 2011 they didn't have it. There was an NBA lockout. There was a work stoppage in 2011. So, of course, there was going to be no Summer League. They had a work stoppage going on. So no Summer League in 2011... And in 2012, it returned and you had the, uh, what will ultimately be a point that I want to drive home, which is it has, it's preseason. There's no way to know how any of this will matter at all for any player in their future. You had co-MVPs of the 2012 Summer League, which was Damian Lillard, top 75 player in NBA history, one of the great three-point shooters of all time, and Josh Shelby (laughs) was also named co-MVP Josh Shelby now plays in Lithuania and has not played an NBA basketball game since 2013 so he was a five-star recruit also by the way but he was a second round pick Balled out for the Memphis Grizzlies during the Vegas Summer League and won a co-MVP in 2012. So now the Summer League is starting to get a little bit more popular. It's been around for a decade now. People are using it to evaluate second-round picks and undrafted players and guys who are fighting for the last three roster spots. And in 2013, the NBA did something different where they negotiated it to be a television event all the games began to be broadcasted on espn and nba tv because nba needed program or espn needed programming in the summer beyond baseball so all the games were broadcast on tv and they added a championship tournament of the final like 16 teams or so i think at one point it was like 12 and then it was 16 and now it's all 32 but they just added a championship round to the summer league in order to add more games that they could sell to espn as content and programming so in 2013 they started playing a round robin tournament to decide the winner of the vegas summer league And the first champion of the Vegas Summer League was the Golden State Warriors. Two years later, they would go on to win the championship. And the next year, it would be the Sacramento Kings, who have not made the playoffs since winning said Summer League championship. Which brings us to 2015. This is when every single Summer League game is being broadcast on ESPN. And this is the first year that I have... social media account we ran comical sports memes for years and years and years we ran that comical sports memes account and in 2015 we began the oldest running segment that we had on the history of comical sports memes which is now six years ago god i feel so old saying that six years ago i had an instagram account for the first time And three months in, we did the Preseason Hall of Fame. The Preseason Hall of Fame was an acknowledgement of players who did great during the NFL preseason and NBA Summer League, but would have no ramifications about any of the successes of their future sporting, you know, accolades. So the Summer League MVP in 2015 was a player named Kyle Anderson For those who may or may not know, Kyle Anderson played five years as a bench player on the Spurs, then ended up on the Memphis Grizzlies for, oh, he got a big contract for Memphis and then recently just signed with Minnesota this year. But Kyle Anderson, Summer League MVP, was the first ever inductee into the preseason Hall of Fame class. And I still have all the graphics on my computer. I'm looking at them right now and I'm tearing up a little bit because it's nostalgia to look at the the trophies with white backgrounds because I couldn't find a transparent background and all of the players heads cropped onto these trophies so that Ky- oh, they're like Oscar statues and Kyle Anderson and Tyus Jones not Trey Jones Tyus Jones being there Denzel Valentine who I'm pretty sure is out of the league but might still be in the league that w- it would be a little surprising to me if Denzel Valentine is still uh, hanging around the NBA but uh he's playing in the G League. Oh, snap. Okay. So Denzel Valentine is is currently in the G League right now and he's a preseason Hall of Famer. And Becky Hammond remember Becky Hammond The person who didn't get an NBA job but then took a, a head coaching job at the Las Vegas Aces and everyone wanted to crap on Becky Hammond cuz like, "Oh, you didn't get an NBA job when the WNBA job is pretty good at the same time." And it's diminishing the job that that is but all in all Becky Hammond coached the 2019 uh, the 2015 San Antonio Spurs where Kyle Anderson won Summer League MVP he ended up being a seventh man for the Spurs for years he's now having a 10-year NBA career Kyle Anderson led the San Antonio Spurs to a summer League championship in 2015 2016 the Chicago Bulls won the NBA Summer League. All the games broadcast on TV, mind you, this was on ESPN, ESPN2, ESPNU, NBA TV, when you're a socially isolated kid during the summers and... You've got all kinds of time on your hands. You really like watching ESPN and U. You get to watch a lot of summer league games. And so I watched the Chicago Bulls with Denzel Valentine win the 2016 NBA Summer League. Jerrion Grant was named MVP after that. Tyus, jo- or Tyus Jones won Summer League MVP, but Jerrion Grant was championship game MVP. And then this begins the two-year magical run of... The Los Angeles Lakers. Because you have to remember, I was a child during this summer league time, between 2017 and 2018. I grew up as a child in San Diego. I was born into Laker fandom. I have since renounced that Laker fandom. But the players I grew up loving for the Lakers were all Lonzo Ball... Brandon Ingram, Kyle Kuzma, Jordan Clarkson, Larry Nance, just terrible, terrible Lakers teams for years and years and years. I loved them as a child. I'd watch their games at night. I loved watch. I think they were playing Minnesota one time and I stayed up late just yelling at the TV on a regular season game with Swaggy P and the Lakers basketball team. But again, the entire premise of Lakers seasons during this time was we are losers And we wait for these draft picks to cash in during the draft lottery. And so if you're really, really into sports and you're really, really into Lakers, wait, you're telling me I can watch Brandon Ingram right away in summer league? Wait, you're telling me I can watch Lonzo Ball right away in summer league, like two weeks after they've been drafted? Wait, you're telling me I can watch Kyle Kuzma and Larry Nance weeks after they've been drafted? I, I was glued to every Lakers Summer League game like it was the NBA playoffs. And it's why I say to this day, I root for losers, and I love being a loser. I was glued to every single one of those Lakers Summer League games. And in 2017, the Lakers won the Summer League championship. And you know who was named Summer League MVP? It was Lonzo Effen Ball. Alonzo Ball was Summer League MVP, and in 2018, the Lakers made it to the championship game of Summer League. They lost to the Portland Trailblazers, but damn it if they didn't have to go through some amazing semifinal games to get to the Summer League championship. Again, rooting for losers meant treating Summer League like it was the NBA playoffs. It was the Lakers' way of advancing deep through Summer League, and you know what? You know who I root for now? The Sacramento Kings. You know who's the only two-time champion in Summer League history? The Sacramento Kings. There's a joke in Sacramento that Summer League is the only way the Sacramento Kings succeed. It's the only way. Summer League's the only way the Sacramento Kings can get anything done and have any semblance of success for people to build on. But from 2017 to 2018, it was Lakers' running summer league does that mean the lakers had top draft picks all the time you're damn right it did but the lakers and the trailblazers for some reason the portland trailblazers were running summer league with kj mcdaniels and derrick jones juniors and all kinds of weird names from deep in the archives they were running the nba summer league you know who else was great in the nba summer league dennis smith jr and he's out of the league now I'm going through the list of preseason Hall of Famers. You had John Collins, Kevin Knox, Josh Hart. These guys were all summer league MVPs. You had, and then we get to 2019. Oh, 2019. 2019 was a hell of a summer league. Brandon Clark went berserk for the Memphis Grizzlies. If you don't know now, Brandon Clark is the backup power forward for the Memphis Grizzlies. But Brandon Clark... Oh, he went berserk during that summer league. He had like 24 points a game, summer league MVP, summer league championship game MVP. Brandon Clark was, I think might be like a first ballot preseason Hall of Famer. I I know those don't exist in the preseason Hall of Fame pantheon that I made up as a child. But Brandon Clark and Carson Edwards preseason Hall of Famers for all time. And by the way, Carson Edwards was coming off of an amazing year in which he was uh, dominating the, uh, the March Madness tournament for Purdue. And he went right into Summer League and just picked up right where he left off. Was it like watching college basketball from the last year all over again? Kind of. But it was damn exciting to watch Carson Edwards put up like 30 points in a Summer League game where they like Boston barely won by two points, but he put up 30 points and was just cooking three pointer after three pointer from Carson Edwards. It's Carson Edwards still in the NBA. I have no idea if Carson Edwards is still on an NBA team at this point. I know he was on the Celtic. No, he's not one of the great summer league first ballot summer leaguer is no longer in the NBA at this point. So, Uh, Carson Edwards is currently a free agent, it would appear right now. But Carson Edwards could ball in the summer league. And Nikhil Alexander-Walker, I thought he was going to be so good. Such a good pick by the Pelicans. I think he's now on the Utah Jazz. I thought he was going to be so good. 2019 summer league. Amazing, amazing, amazing event. And by now, the Summer League had gotten to a place where because of 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, all the games being on ESPN, star players were going to Vegas to watch the Summer League. People were flying in from all over the country to go to Summer League because, hey, they're watching it on TV. Might as well go watch it in person. And the NBA could start charging tickets. For the Summer League, day passes cost about $50 now if you want to go watch the NBA Summer League. It became a large event that you could sell on TV, you could sell in person, and if you read the NBA's website, sell the unprecedented access that you would get to players with a picture of Shaquille O'Neal taking photos in the concourse of the Thomas and Mack Center. You, the fan, unprecedented access to stars and general managers, and then the COVID pandemic happened and they didn't have a summer league in 2020, but then 2021 came back and it was Davion Mitchell's turn to dominate summer league, and it was, uh, who else was in the mix there? I'm trying to remember. Uh, they had, I had to do two years worth. JJ Redick was a preseason Hall of Famer, Bull Bull, Obi Toppin, Oh, it was an amazing, amazing run for two years worth of summer leagues all over again. It was Peyton Pritchard. It was Davion Mitchell who won summer league MVP. What is the deal with the Celtics, by the way? The Celtics always just had those dudes. Pritchard balled out in summer league. Davion Mitchell won MVP, but there was another guy there. Obi Toppin, Bull Bull, J.J. Redick. J.J. Reddick's retired from the sport now, but damn if J.J. Reddick didn't make a preseason Hall of Fame before he walked out the door. It wasn't Summer League, it was just regular preseason. But when you're filling five slots from last year, it's just something you have to do. You just have to give away your preseason Hall of Fames wherever you can slide them in. So 2021, fun Summer League. And now I've reached a point where I don't watch Summer League anymore because I barely watch the NBA regular season games at all. I have perspective and balance in life, but I still love all those fun, glorious memories that NBA Summer League provided me as a child. And this is your oral history of the economics and the history and lore that is NBA Summer League that has gone through five different distinct eras over its two decades of existence. A middle of July sporting event that gets people irrationally excited about Paolo Banquero and Chet Holmgren, but they won't get a chance to be preseason Hall of Famers because Paolo Bancaro has been shut down after a game and a half, and Chet Holmgren played three games, and now he's good to go. Summer League, you can be too good for Summer League. I think after you haven't seen a lot of Blake Griffins or John Walls or top three picks win Summer League MVP in recent years. It's been Kyle Anderson, mid-first-round pick. Tyus Jones, mid-first-round pick. I think he was a late first-round pick, actually. Lonzo Ball was the number two pick. Josh Hart was the last pick in the first round. Brandon Clark was the 24th pick in the draft for the Memphis Grizzlies, and he became an all-time summer leaguer. Davion Mitchell, ninth pick in the draft. Cam Thomas, who won a co-summer league MVP, was probably undrafted. It's Summer league can be for the players like... Davion Mitchell and the the picks nine through 24 thrive in summer league. It's all about picks nine through 30 in the NBA draft are the ones who thrive in summer league. I hope some of you are enjoying summer league so far this year. I can't give serious analysis about preseason sports anymore. My mind has evolved past that point. It's not worthy. I've grown as a person to grow beyond summer league being a, a form of entertainment during the year. That's not to deter you from enjoying summer league and eventually I will make the long-awaited trek to Summer League, even though now it is a massive economic endeavor for these sports leagues. It's only $50 for a day pass, but you have to keep buying day passes over and over again to keep going to Summer League, because the NBA can make some money off the NBA. Summer league and people can host press conferences and introduce their rookies and Sacramento Kings fans can get excited about Keegan Murray the way they got excited about Davion Mitchell when it will have very little impact on how the season will play out. Uh, there was also a summer league in Sacramento because in 2017 the Orlando Summer League came to a crashing halt and it was no longer in existence after 15 years because everyone went to the Las Vegas Summer League. In 2018, it was the first summer league where they had all 32 teams attend the Vegas Summer League. Or 30 teams. All 30 teams attended the Vegas Summer League, and there was no need for an Orlando Summer League. But the Salt Lake City one still exists, and the California Classic now exists in its place, which was the Sacramento Kings creating their own Summer League to drive some interest there. It was Miami, Golden State, the Lakers, and the Kings hosting their own summer league for three days in the beginning of July. And then that event got stolen by the Golden State Warriors because Golden State Warriors are dicks and they won't let Sacramento have anything that possibly makes money. So that is the additional four-team summer league. But now who needs that when you have one centralized gigantic summer league crowning a champion, where you can sell games to ESPN and fill a 17,000-seat venue for every game during every day. Who needs it when you have one gigantic economic engine that now exists in the NBA Summer League? For a time in my childhood, NBA Summer League provided me very fond, fun memories. The first-ever podcast segment six years ago uh, was before we ever had a podcast, the Preseason Hall of Fame that now carries on its legacy still to this day. Once summer league ends, we will crown next week. We will crown three new preseason Hall of Fame inductees and shrinees for the 2022 class. It's going to be difficult to cut another Sacramento King, but it's the Hall of Fame where the Sacramento Kings can get lots of people and the Minnesota Timberwolves and Memphis Grizzlies can get lots of people in there. Why? Because it only takes like two weeks to crown a preseason hall of fame. Not a large enough sample size to determine any kind of success for any kind of prospect, but it's fun form of entertainment during a dull sports summer in which I'd encourage people to go do something other than sports. But I'll watch the summer league eventually. Eventually it'll roll back around. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy a podcast. We have episodes every single day, Monday through Friday. Occasionally wired up on Sundays, although now that we're in the, the doldrum period of sports, there probably won't be a lot of wired ups coming your way. Return of episode three of the Spur Fall of the Spurs Dynasty is tomorrow. Make sure to listen to episodes one and two. Again, they are available wherever you get podcasts downloaded on the take it easy feed from last two weeks they dropped on Wednesday, the last couple weeks. So you just have to go down like five episodes. It's in big, bold letters so that you can find the capitalized versions of the fall of the Spurs dynasty. You can check that out. You can check it out on its own podcast feed. Any and all downloads are hugely, hugely appreciated in order to, Maybe make more cool content like that sometime in the future. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, take it easy. We will talk to you again tomorrow with episode three of the fall of the Spurs dynasty. Thanks for stopping in, everybody. Take it easy.